You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, let me tell you three brief stories. 20 years ago, the New York Times ran a story that asked this question, why for every 100,000 citizens, the U.S. imprisons 519 of them, while Japan, for every 100,000 citizens, only imprisons 37. Well, the reporter went in search for the answer, and what she found was the opposite of what she expected. She interviewed a Japanese man who had spent 15 years in prison, and during those 5,000 days locked behind bars, not one person visited him. After his release, his wife and son met with him only to tell him they never wanted to see his face again. And his three daughters, he hasn't seen since he went to jail, they're married with a couple of grandchildren who he also has never seen. Why? Well, because according to family and culture, he has brought something upon himself and upon his family name. Shame. In a world of saving face, shame and disgrace is inexcusable. Ernest Hemingway was one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century. His grandparents went to Wheaton College, a prestigious Christian school, and his mother detested his way of life. One year, she wrote a letter to her son on his birthday, and it read this. A mother's life is like a bank. Every child that is born to her enters the world with a large and prosperous bank account. The child makes withdrawals, but no deposits during all the early years. So later in life, it is his responsibility to replenish the supply he has drawn out. She then goes on to spell out all the ways in which Hemingway should be making deposits to keep the account in good standing, like flowers and fruit and candy and the paying of mom's bills, and above all else, the determination to stop neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus. Ironically enough, Hemingway never got over his hatred for his mom or her Savior. Shame. I remember moving into Sarah and I's first house together, and if you know me or Sarah, one of the things you probably know is that Sarah is unbelievably handy. And I am unbelievably not handy. Uh, but there was an incident that happened early on in our marriage where I was trying to fix something and I completely screwed it up. Uh, and Sarah and I talked about it, and this was no fault of hers, but I will never forget the overwhelming sense of my body breaking down because of my sheer incompetency. And I started asking the question, am I even a man? Why can I not do the thing that I am told, at least culturally, I am supposed to be able to do? Why do I suck so much? I was having an identity crisis where what I could or couldn't do was defining who I was or was not. And what I didn't know then but can now articulate was that I was experiencing a deep level of shame. I was ashamed. We don't live in an honor-shame culture. We live in a guilt-innocence culture, one that deals in purely judicial ways, right and wrong, black and white. 
But when we read the Bible, we should understand the values of the Scripture were primarily operating with an honor-shame culture in mind. So let's consider the Scripture of 1 Peter 2, 4-10. through 10. The first part of this section and the last part of the section deal with us, and the middle part deals with God. And the first part is this, the giving of honor for the shameful. This is Peter writing to some of the early churches and followers of Jesus. As you come to him, followers, as you, followers of Jesus, come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I think in the West, we hear that and we're like, of course, whoever believes in Jesus. But we have no concept of honor and shame. We have a little concept of status, superiority, or inferiority. But in much of the rest of the world, whether the caste system is implicit or explicit, there are tears, and there were certainly tears in the time of Scripture. And to much of the rest of the world, this is a ludicrous statement. Whoever believes, which means financial status, social capital, corporate standing, color of skin, nationality of origin, what has been done to you, what you have done, doesn't matter. That would have been offensive and near blasphemy to the Jewish people, but of course it doesn't stop there because on down it reads, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. the wonder of God is that when he walked among us, his sole purpose was to do his father's will, which was to win his children back. The mission that God set out on was to free people and to make them his own, which means to make them inherently honorable. A royal priesthood and a holy nation, which means people set apart for distinct purposes. And when you are in an honor-shame culture and you take someone who is considered dishonorable and make them honorable, that is stunning. But we cannot apply the idea of receiving honor until, until we recognize how our shame has been removed. Shameful people become people that make up the house of God because God became shameful. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The metaphor that is given throughout the Bible is that Jesus and the church are a building. Jesus is the key piece of architecture. There is no building without him. There is no foundation without him. A stone that was tossed out, pushed aside, deemed useless and worthless and vile and irrelevant becomes the cornerstone of the entire building. Our honor and our dignity and our ability to stand before God is because God took on our shame. 
So what feels helpful in this moment is actually to show you an example of honor being stripped and restored in the Bible. It's actually the story of Peter. I want you to consider the, specifically the last 24 hours of Peter's life. Let's start in the upper room. There's a, they're sitting around. It's Jesus and 12 disciples. They're eating a meal together. Jesus looks at all his disciples and says, you will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter says, they'll all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. So what happens? Well, Jesus takes Peter and John and James into the garden to pray and says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. My soul was very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. So an hour passes by and Jesus comes back and sees his closest friends, the people who he has let into his most intimate spaces, sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he goes away and prays, pleading with the father to remove the cup of judgment that he's about to drink for all of us because of our sin. And he comes back to them again. And he found them sleeping again. And then Jesus says, wake up. I have been sold off and humiliated to be killed. It is time. And what happens? Peter literally takes a sword with him as if he's going to war, still completely oblivious to all that's happening. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. It's not like he's striking an armed guard here. He strikes a defenseless servant of the high priest of the temple. And then Peter follows Jesus all the way into the courtyard. And there's a woman at the door and she just makes a passing observation. You, you are one of his disciples, are you not? No, no, I'm not, he says. And then here's what happens. The servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. For three years, Peter walked with Jesus. He did not just learn from him. He ate with him. He performed miracles in his name. He saw signs and wonders. He proclaimed that he was the prophesied one, the, the coming of the second David, the one who finally arrived for three years. He said things like, you will not die for me, Jesus. I will die for you. He said things like, you are the son of God. He said, where else will we go, Jesus? You have the words of life. He experienced moments that he could not even describe, like the transfiguration, like the healing of his mother-in-law who was deathly ill, like seeing Lazarus, Lazarus rise from the dead, the casting out of demons, and even more than all of that, he experienced intimate friendship with the God-man himself. And in a matter of five hours, he goes on to deny ever being associated with the man who he's rarely been separated from for the last 
three years. Deny, 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 and then the crow of a local rooster, it might as well have been a siren. You have been there. I have been there. In a moment, it's like you wake up from a trance and this feeling hits your gut. What have I done? And then the question underneath the question rises, who even am I? And if you haven't experienced that feeling and you haven't experienced that question, you're lying to yourself. I always find it so fascinating when people say, I have no regrets in life. No regrets? You don't regret anything you have ever done in your entire life. I have so many regrets. And it's not because God has not used my insane decision making or the difficult things I have brought upon myself or that he is not revealing more of himself to me in those choices. The reason, one of the reasons I have so many regrets is because the memory of them lingers. And let me tell you, at least in my experience, one of the worst aspects of sin is the memory of it. Guilt is the realization that you have done something wrong, but shame is the feeling that you are the something wrong. And it goes all the way back to the very first pages of the Bible. Adam and Eve commit the sin of idolatry, but they experience the feeling of shame. And what do they do? The same thing we do. Hide. They hide. They find the nearest cover, in their case, large trees, to prevent them from, from the embarrassment of God finding out who they actually are. They are now naked, living in a broken world, and that produces all sorts of shame. And honestly, does it not feel like shame has the last word? We run for cover. We deal with shame in a hundred ways because it's so overwhelming. It crushes us. But this, this is the story of Easter. The most honorable being in the universe, Jesus, puts on shame. When we think of the crucifixion, our temptation is to think of the bloody physical aspects of it. And that's... Good. It is the cornerstone of our faith. We must consider the blood of Jesus, for it is what cleanses us. But the early followers of Jesus dreaded something more than a violent execution. They dreaded a shameful execution. Look how Mark describes the crucifixion scene. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Shame binds you. It literally paralyzes you. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Shame accuses. If there is anything that shame does, it brings massive accusations and allegations. Shame silences. Have you no answer to make? What can we even say in the face of feeling like the smallest person in the world. Shame multiplies our self-consciousness. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a, thr thr a thorn of crown. That, that does not sound, that is not right. 
A throne of cords is not what Jesus had in his head. Uh, that is definitely not it. Uh, it's definitely a thorn of crowns. Um, that is that's hilarious. Uh, there's no recovering from that. There's no recovering. It just is what it is. It's a crown of thorns. Uh, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Again, we think of the crown of thorns uh, as physical torture. But we lose the significance here because our culture, this culture, is constantly making fun of people. We live in a culture of jokes. We constantly make fun of one another. But in this culture, to mock someone, to ridicule someone, is to eradicate their humanity. This is why the gospel writers spend half of the language talking about the verbal assaults and insults that the people were throwing at Jesus, both the high priest, people in power, the crowds, the masses, and literally the person on his left when he was crucified. Insulted him, saying, could you not bring us down from here? You say you are the Messiah. To put it in today's context, let's give a very practical example. Does anyone in here know the name Zinedine Zidane? All right, yes, three of you. Good, good, okay. Zinedine Zinedine Zidane was a very famous soccer player for the French national team back in 2006, arguably the greatest player in the world at all at the time, uh, and on the favorite to win the World Cup. And in the championship match, a player from Italy says something about Zidane's sister, and he turns around and headbutts the guy. and gets a red card and is thrown out of the game, and France loses the game. So, championship match, overtime in the World Cup, and people in the West just start freaking out. They're like, could you not let someone just insult your sister and let that roll off your back? You, in, in the greatest moment of your life, the championship match of the World Cup for your national team, and you cannot just take an insult. But then, of course, people in the East were like, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Zidane is a, is a non-practicing Algerian Muslim. Uh, and to have an insult thrown at your family member is the greatest dishonor. And to not defend your family name um, is to dis- disregard your family. And so, yes, it did supersede a soccer match. Shame also belittles. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Again, we think spitting on someone is gross and a sign of disrespect, but in parts of the Middle East, to spit on someone is to equate to dirt. And the kneeling down to him is such a slap in the face to everything he has both said and done. And then shame exposes. Jesus died naked. And I think we have, out of reverence and respect, placed a loincloth across him for maybe good reason. But he was not made to be presentable. Literally was the opposite. He was made to be humiliated. And then shame heightens our fear of abandonment. Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have prettied up the cross. We wear it on our necks. We wear it on our bracelets. 
Heck, in our home, we have collected crosses from around the world that are handmade. But cross was a vulgar term in ancient Rome. You did not speak of it in public. And for those responsible for crucifixions, this is what the manual said. Executioner, bind his hands, veil his head, and hang him on the tree of shame. My thought is that we wouldn't do that with an electric chair or a needle. Imagine someone wearing a lethal injection bracelet around. Ironically, many of the crucifixions that happened in Rome happened with people who had died before they were ever crucified. And imagine their naked body hanging on two crossbeams of wood. It was not about killing them. It was about humiliating them. Because the lasting image of a dead, naked felon hanging on a tree gets embedded into your mind and you are never able to lose the sight that Rome is trying to communicate. This person is absolutely worthless. This is the story of Easter. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree naked and covered in shame and Jesus hangs on a tree naked, absorbing our shame and three days later, conquering it. This is the great reversal, the honorable for the shameful. The one who had no sin substituted for the one with all sin. It's the one who has fulfilled the law, becoming cursed for those of us who have failed the law so that we might be blessed. It's for the one who has always been one with the Father, rejected in shame so that we might be accepted and, and embraced by the Father. It is the king for the peasants. He gets the cross and we get the crown. So, circle back to Peter. Jesus has died. Jesus has come back to life. And the disciples are out fishing and a man from shore yells out to him, to the, to the boat, did you catch anything? Nope. Haven't caught anything. Well, just put your nets on the other side. And John looks at Peter and says, it is the Lord. And then it says, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Like full on swan dive onto shore to Jesus. And in a moment, it feels like everything he ever said is finally validated. But here is where it gets so, so good. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Just imagine for a moment being Peter. You have fulfilled the words of Jesus by denying you ever knew him. And you've had over 24 hours to consider the fact that your friend, your Lord, your rabbi is supposedly dead. And the last thing you did is pretend you didn't know him. And he yells out from shore and you thrust yourself into the sea as fast as you can. You walk up onto land. You walk up to Jesus and then... And it hits you. There is nothing like the sense of smell. And there is nothing like the smell of charcoal. 
Teresa White is a, uh, the chair of the psych department at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, and she says people often say that the sense of smell conjures up memories so well that they feel as if they are experiencing the event the same exact way all over again. And we all know when we step back into a place where there's that old smell again, and in a moment we are right back to where the original event took place. It is a strange neurological, uh, neurolog neurobiological phenomenon more than taste or sight or sound or touch. It is smell. And there Peter is standing around a charcoal fire, the smoke billowing up, and he just is right back where he was two days ago. Sulking in his personal denial of knowing his best friend after, by the way, calling Jesus a liar and saying, I'll never do that. There are only two references in the New Testament of a charcoal fire. The one where Peter stands around with his arms crossed, adamantly denying ever knowing Jesus, and the one where Jesus makes Peter a charcoal fire and invites him to breakfast. The lowest point in Peter's discipleship to Jesus becomes the place where Jesus restores Peter. The place where he is most raw becomes the place where he gets most freed. And then there's that famous interplay between Jesus and Peter where God asks Peter three different times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus, yes, 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 I love you, Jesus. And then he says these words. He has said throughout his entire ministry, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. The very first words Jesus spoke to Peter are the same words he speaks to him in the midst of his sin. Follow me. Follow me. It's just a constant invitation. Follow me. Follow me. And God can say that because that's exactly what God just did. He told them for three years, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. There is suffering in this world. In this world, you will have trouble, heartache, famine, disease, sin, demons, disaster, injustice, poverty, slander. In this world, you will experience conflict, hate speech, and violent persecution. For my name's sake, you will have so much pain. But the message is the same. Follow me. Even to a death that is shameful because I have risen from the dead and given you your dignity back. Shame does not have the final word. The world, listen, the world is full of chaos. It's full of chaos and darkness. If you haven't noticed, things are not going super well. And yet suffering and shame and heartache and sin are actually the soil where hope and life is birthed. This week, this week, 
I learn of two friends who have a seven-month-old diagnosed with Langerhans cell histiocytosis, a rare form of cancer, seven months old. Tell me there is an evil in the world. Tell me. This week, I learned of one of my best friends growing up and coming of age who was in my wedding diagnosed with a rare form of cancer at the age of 32. Seemingly, at this moment, incurable. Incurable. In a hospital bed. Chaos. The world is chaos. This week, I go to a funeral of a 91-year-old man. And the only words this man's four grandchildren can stomach without weeping are, he was the godliest man we've ever known. And then something very, very bizarre happened. We finish the funeral service. We go to the cemetery for some closing remarks. And once we are finished, the attendants literally put the body in the ground while we're all standing there. And they literally take the dirt that's off to the side and start shoveling it over the casket while we're all standing there. And I went over to my cousin and I just said, either this man lived a nice, non-important, irrelevant life that doesn't matter and your memory of him is going to fade one day and you're going to have the same fate and the world's going to keep spinning in utter chaos and darkness or Jesus is going to raise his physical body out of that six feet of the ground just like he raised his own. There is literally no in-between. It's either nihilism or resurrection. Either nothing matters in the world or everything matters. Paul says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, our gathering is it's not futile. It's actually stupid. What are we doing? Singing songs to a dead man. Or he actually got up from the grave and has significant purpose for your life. One of my favorite hymns and one of my favorite lines is from, is from Joy, to the Lord, Joy to the World. We sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And folks, it is found very far. But as far as the curse goes, the blessing goes farther. Can you imagine what resurrection will actually be like? Those who cannot feed themselves will pick up a fork and a knife and the wheelchair bound will do front flips and those who cannot speak will sing and those who cannot hear will be awed by symphonies and those who cannot see will be wowed by color. There will be no need for words like syndrome or degenerative and no place for blood pressure checks or the terms run some tests or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia because just as we have been born the image of the man of dust fallen and broken Adam so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will have resurrected bodies like Jesus that can eat, cook, walk, talk, sing, laugh, grill out, and socialize, and yet be indestructible. Autism, where is your victory now? Alzheimer's, where is your sting now? Things like eating disorders and the flu and strokes and kidney diseases and malnourishment will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to be experienced again. And what about all the relational stuff, the wars that just never cease and the systemic stronghold that the powerful put on the neck of the inferior and the tensions that result in hatred, that result in dehumanization, that result in death? 
Everything from blood spilled on the ground from school shootings and subway grenades to words that have lodged a place in your heart that you feel like you will never heal from. And what about my own stuff? My own arrogance? Envy, greed, lust, my personal insecurities and demons deep within me? Jesus says, those go in the grave. The Hollywood-made apocalyptic movies that depict a world at war where there is constantly fire and gruesome images of violence is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not everything's going to blow up. It's that everything is going to come back to life. For those who follow Jesus, the end is resurrection, not destruction. Color will fill the canvas. Crops always fresh. Water always clear. C.S. Lewis says in the last battle, the reason why we love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little like this. The beauty that hits in this world is going to flash in the next. And then, of course, there is Jesus himself. For as rich as the new creation will be and as renewed and as resurrected as we will be, nothing will compare to seeing our king fully robed in the flesh The metaphor in the scripture is marriage, and the start of marriage is a wedding. And for all the pomp and circumstance that come with weddings, right? Beauty, flowers, food, community, laughter. We all know why we're at a wedding. It's to see two people commit to covenant together until the rest of their lives. And so it is with Jesus and the church. We will notice all the surroundings of a resurrected world, and there will be many surroundings to notice, but we will be overcome by the resurrected king. And the scene will be like the rising sun with the backdrop of so many stars, beautiful, and yet the sun just overwhelms them all. Easter is about resurrection, a resurrected king resurrecting his people to live in a resurrected world where there is only freedom and never shame, only life and never death. The only gravestone that is going to be in the new world is going to read death and all of its friends, including shame. Let's pray. Jesus, we we honor you today. We are broken people and yet we have been invited to your table. We carry with us so much shame over so many things and we bear the burden of suffering in this world so deeply and yet you are not removed from our suffering. You are not removed from our suffering. Not only did you suffer with us, but you actually suffered for us on our behalf. I pray that that resonates in our hearts today. The beauty of the world you are making new and whole is coming. Ground us in hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.